This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. The year is 1859, an auspicious year. The year that Charles Darwin first published On the Origin of Species, which ushered in a new phase of the conversation around evolutionary theory. It's also the year that Robert Bunsen and Gustav Kirchhoff developed the flame spectroscope, which could read the chemical signature of deep space objects, including planets, stars, and nebulae. This would deepen our understanding of stellar evolution and our place in the universe. But 1859 is also important because of another connection with deep history, a literal connection with deep history, which took place on the 27th of August in Titusville, Pennsylvania, in the good old US of A. There, Edwin Drake, given the title Colonel by investors trying to improve his reputation among locals and still belittled for driving an iron pipe deep into the ground, drilling through sheer bedrock for months on end, struck oil at 69 feet. This wasn't the first modern oil well. That honor seems to have gone to F.N. Semyonov, who was digging wells in Azerbaijan in the late 1840s. But it was the first in the U.S. to illustrate the economic viability of similar projects. Before Drake's success, whale oil still dominated the market for lamps, transportation maintenance, and medicines, although cottonseed oil was also on the rise in the mid-century because the cotton industry was looking for a way to offload this manufacturing byproduct. Cottonseed would go on to make a mess of our food industry in the form of Crisco, but that's a tale for another time. Both whale and cottonseed oil, as you can imagine, were highly unethical industries one relying on brutal fishing practices and the other on slave labor. But ethics weren't central to the pursuit of something better. It was all about efficiency and mass production. Sometimes oil would bubble up in what were called seeps along the coast or around surface rock formations. But rock oil was difficult to collect and filter in useful quantities. If only one could get right to the source deep underground then maybe the world could be transformed. And Drake pulled it off, after which suddenly everyone wanted in. Within days, other prospectors were setting up their own operations and oil production surged in the region. Within years, plenty of new companies and entrepreneurs were becoming rich from the industry. But Drake wasn't one of them, because Drake had made a terrible mistake. So busy just trying to get the job done after early investors had given up and he'd had to scramble for the funds to keep his dream alive, Drake had neglected to patent the tools and the processes he'd used in his original efforts absent that legal exclusivity on which so many fortunes are based in the West, others quickly replicated his work and surpassed him in the field. Broke in his old age, Drake was ultimately granted a stipend by the city of Titusville, 
in thanks for launching the modern U.S. oil industry. And if that sounds like a rather socialist outcome, the state stepping in to remedy a failure of private industry to reward one man for his labor, hold on to your seats, because that's just the beginning of the strange, twisty story of oil and natural gas and their political role in the contemporary world. Because now we get to the heart of our series on petro-nationalism. In episodes one and two, I asked us to think differently about nationalism, the nation-state, and the corporation, concepts often dear to us thanks to childhood associations. I needed us to think slowly about these ideas, to really estrange ourselves from them, because historians, political scientists, economists, and politicians often treat the definitions of such abstract terms as givens. And yet most are arbitrary attempts to delineate between concepts that maybe aren't so different after all. The same way that failure can be spun as delayed success. And terrorist versus freedom fighter depends on context. So too do foundational notions of the modern nation and corporate enterprise have more in common than our term use often permits. And this matters because these artificial divisions have made it harder than necessary to understand crises like the world's response to Russia's war in Ukraine and the struggle to combat climate change as exacerbated by oil and gas economies and related resource wars with China in the Middle East and across South America. But when we put aside the arbitrary divides and look closely at the economic activities driving political behavior between various global actors, a very different picture of our organizing principles appears. Maybe not a pleasant one, but definitely one that clarifies how far our political structures are from the ideals that, in all our grand dreaming of better worlds, we so long for our societies to sustain. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're extracting a deeper understanding of contemporary global politics through a study of petro-nationalism, the formation maintenance and advancement of countries through the oil and gas industries they have created, traded in, and otherwise leveraged for international power, at cost to the humans in them all. Let's jump ahead 160 years, give or take, 
because there is truly little like Russia's war in Ukraine to highlight how important petroleum has become, and not just as some abstract money-making venture, but as the core of our contemporary lifestyles and as the driver of most of our major foreign conflicts and crises. Our nations aren't just powered by petroleum. The whole myth of our nation-states has been shaped by the complex interplay of resource trading in this industry. And it's been right under our noses, but also obscured by arbitrary divides between corporate economic activity as both private and public enterprise. Here's an obvious example, which you still might have missed when it happened. When Russia first invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022, one of our most pressing questions was how will the West respond? As in, will we go to war? In part? As a whole? Or will we try sanctions first? And if sanctions, what kind? On February 27 and 28, the US rolled out its initial sanctions package, which involved some startling world firsts, including blocking Russia from the international payment system SWIFT, freezing the assets of Russian oligarchs, and banning transactions with the Russian Central Bank and related national funds. But there was one gaping exception carved out in this package, and that was for the energy sector. It wouldn't be until December of 2022 and February of 2023 that major sanctions would be set directly on crude oil and refined petroleum products. At the outset of the war, the US and other major Western powers emphatically stressed that Russia would still be allowed to export oil and gas. That's because Russia is the world's third largest oil producer and the world's largest exporter of natural gas to global markets. So even though oil and gas were very clearly funding Russia's invasion of Ukraine, earning the country 165 billion even in 2022 during the war, the West could not ban Russian exports all at once. Europe, the Americas, and a host of countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East relied too much on petroleum and gas products not only to fuel their homes and run local industries, but also to sustain transportation networks vital for the delivery of material goods, including essential staples to food in secure regions. In other words, we could ban one kind of currency, the currency we often view as running the world, the almighty US dollar but we could not ban the other, the real currency, the power that powers contemporary society. One year on, the power of petroleum as our core unit of exchange continues to destabilize other financial relationships. After months of scrambling in the EU especially to find other energy relationships to replace dependency on Russia's oil and gas, the world allied with Ukraine was finally better positioned to brace for the terrible blow of restricting crude oil and refined petroleum products from Russia. But Russia had been busy too. 
shoring up its economic ties with countries like China and India, who have been more than willing to receive Russia's excesses of crude oil following voluntary disengagements on the part of Western oil giants ahead of formal sanctions. And although I can only speak for the world up to the time of this recording, one particularly striking change emerged recently in India, where oil refiners got the green light to buy Russian oil in the dirham, the currency of Morocco and the United Arab Emirates, instead of U.S. dollars. In simple terms, this means that India's private industries were given public sanction to bypass the standard unit of exchange for oil sales, and with it, all U.S. restrictions on them to go about their chosen business. Financial tokens are only useful inasmuch as they help a consumer acquire the goods they desire. And oil continues to be the most pressing good of them all, around which all other financial relationships can be made to bend as needed. Oil is powering the engine of Russia's war in Ukraine, just as it's been powering so many notions of nation-state destiny for the last 160 years. Let's go back then and fill in a few of the gaps. How did we get from Edwin Drake to the current state of international affairs? The history of oil sprawls, so we'll just focus on a few key moments. Drake's invention didn't make him rich, but his pioneering in the field certainly paved the way for John D. Rockefeller, who with his brother and a small group of associates would create an empire in the field. And no, I do not use that word empire lightly. It's the whole reason I wanted us to think carefully about European history before we arrived at our more immediate nationalist moment. Soon after Drake's discovery in 1863, Rockefeller and his associates formed an Ohio partnership called Standard Oil, a company that would be incorporated in 1870 and dominate the oil industry until 1911, when it was found by the Supreme Court to be an illegal monopoly and was broken up into 43 components, the most famous of which you and I know as ExxonMobil and Chevron. Standard Oil did indeed have an illegal national monopoly, which it had achieved in part through aggressive buyouts and price-fixing schemes to drive competitors out of the field. Much like the Holy Roman Empire in Europe centuries prior, Standard Oil operated alongside and in competition with the government of each U.S. state. The thing is, incorporation is supposed to be a relationship between a company and a given legal jurisdiction. Corporations from one state are generally expected to pay higher taxes if they want to do business in another state, so that they cannot overwhelm the local corporations that a state has endorsed. And for this reason, sometimes corporations are also flat-out banned from owning companies in other states, to truly ensure that when a government promises a certain legal relationship with a group of enterprising citizens, it will do everything in its power to uphold the primacy of that agreement over all outside arrangements. But Standard Oil got around this issue in a way not entirely dissimilar to how the Holy Roman Empire, especially under the control of the Habsburg family, ceded a range of European countries with its representatives. Rockefeller expanded his reach, bypassing state laws for corporations by connecting companies in different states under a core group of trustees, the Standard Oil Trust. 
This big Papa Bear Council, centralized power and guided policy without explicitly breaking laws around state-specific incorporation. And yes, this isn't exactly the same as using family lineage and strategic marriage, Jesuit missionaries, and other representatives of the Roman Catholic Church to spread one family's influence across a continent, undermining local power brokers surrounding each country's throne in the process. But it's also not as far removed as many in the U.S. would probably like to believe, having pinned so much of their national identity on the myth of having escaped the nebulous oppression of life under kings and empires indifferent to state divides. good is an empire if it doesn't spread as far as it can. For all that the U.S. sought to differentiate itself culturally, Britain and the U.S. were not much different in their dealings with the Middle East, especially around the development of oil economies. Back when Iran was known as Persia, the British established many of its borders and pressured concessions on a number of economic lines. One of those allowed William Knox Darcy to send George Reynolds in search of oil on Persian soil. For years, starting in 1901, Reynolds struggled through failed venture after venture before striking it big on May 26, 1908. With investment from a British company, Burma Oil, Darcy formed the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which became British Petroleum in 1954 and is now known as BP. Not to be outdone, though, Standard Oil of California, one of the constituent parts that lived on after the Standard Oil monopoly, negotiated a concession from the Saudi Arabian government to look for oil in the 1930s. It would take until 1938 for geologist Max Steinecke and his team to strike what would become one of the world's greatest petroleum deposits a giant oil field that transformed the Saudi peoples from a generally nomadic culture to a center of wealth and economic potential. For the next four decades, the Arabian-American oil company, Aramco, maintained its concession, a legal contract with the Saudi Arabian government for that land, but not without Saudi Arabia growing its own competitive interests until it bought out the company entirely in 1988. In other episodes, we're going to go deeper into some of the complexities surrounding petro-nationalism in the Middle East, but one other key component remains to be outlined here, and that takes place in Abu Dhabi, in what we now know as the United Arab Emirates. Once upon a time, these were the Trucial states, a term shaped by agreements with the British government, and the local regions were governed by sheikhs without the same precision with respect to national borders that is often taken for granted today. What changed this region? What caused these nomadic peoples to entrench many of their current borders for the first time? In part, it was formal arbitration around the extent to which concessions made to British companies over oil took priority over regional jurisdiction. 
the UAE would come to control the seventh largest reserves of petroleum in the world, and it would do so as an organization formalized precisely around the mutual interest that separate emirates had in developing local legal frameworks that could compete in the global market. In other words, territorial definition became of urgent importance once it proved necessary to define different parties' rights to the resources on any given land. Likewise, political arrangements coalesced around the need to define oneself against the threat of external encroachment. And whether that encroachment came directly from the British government and its military, or a private incorporated enterprise looking to grow its own territory made no difference. The result was still the creation of a new nation-state, an assertion of sovereign ownership over a land that these peoples had lived on for centuries, and the right to restrict the activities of foreign powers on it. If not for oil, if not for the whole mad rush of the petroleum industry, what other shape would these nations have taken? What kind of world would we have inhabited if resource pressures hadn't driven us to draw more rigid borders around our nation-states? Today, the U.S. is responsible for 20.5% of the world's oil consumption. That's 332 million people responsible for the use of just over a fifth of this non-renewable natural resource. Only China comes close, with 14% of the world's oil consumption, but with over four times as many human beings. India, with 1.3 billion people, consumes 4.9%. Moreover, a 2022 report by the U.S. Energy Information Administration suggests that U.S. petroleum consumption is currently on track to increase by 14% by 2050. But the U.S. is in a complex relationship with other countries over petroleum products, which include crude oil, hydrocarbon gas liquids, biofuels, gasoline, and diesel fuels. In 2021, the U.S. imported around 8.47 million barrels per day from 73 countries of which some 6.11 million were crude oil, and it exported around 8.54 million barrels per day to 176 countries and four associated territories, over half of which included refined petroleum products. In other words, even though the U.S. consumes far more oil than other parts of the world, it also operates in an intricate network of related resource markets. Crude oil in, other petroleum products out. Compare its equilibrium to Saudi Arabia, which in 2022 exported around 7 million barrels of crude oil per day, but also produced over 10 million per day while importing fuel from Russia along with other trading partners to help free up more of its crude oil for export. So why not send out all 10 million to solidify its position as the world's top exporter? for a critical reason that relates to the U.S.'s own choice to enhance local natural gas production in recent years. Saudi Arabia is trying to become less reliant on other countries for refined petroleum products, and it's using some of its crude oil to develop these domestic industries. In short, these countries and others are fully aware of their over-reliance on oil and related fossil fuels, and they're choosing to develop more of these resources domestically to protect themselves from external market shocks. But is it too little, too late? That's the question. 
160 years after Edwin Drake launched massive oil operations in the country, US companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil sit alongside later British giants like BP and Shell in prominent positions not only on lists of the wealthiest companies in the world, but also on lists of the worst polluters and the most responsible for environmental ruin. More critically though, it is a mistake to separate the labors of these and related international companies from the nation states that first gave license to their activities. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other countries that maintain state control of their oil companies are not considerably different enterprises in practice. This is because for-profit projects, whether meant to profit the rulers of a state, or a special class of merchants and entrepreneurs given license by the state to make their fortunes have consistently underpinned the growth of modern nations. And we know this on some level. The whole of the American dream, for instance, is the promise of a society in which a person can provide for their family and live comfortably by the sweat of their brow and choose with whom they do or do not associate in the process a dominion under which you as the head of your household have dominion in turn and where wealth entitles some to a level of control over those around them, democracy be damned. A practice that we allow even when it means that we're controlled by someone else because we have strong hopes of one day having the same means to control others in turn. When we recognize this organizational structure for what it is, a lot of the mess of recent history starts to fall away. In episode four, we'll look at one of the most misleading divisions of political theory to have shaped the last two centuries, the false divide between capitalism and communism, and how it too played itself out around the desire to control and extend access to petroleum reserves. But for now, what matters most is recognizing that the reason we've been moiling for oil these past two centuries is in strong part to sustain the notions of nation-state identity that were significantly shaped by oil in the first place. There were other ways to develop our sense of borders and community and governance, but the industrial press of mass production sent us into a resource race instead. The wounds we inflicted on each other and ourselves in the course of that race will likely take many more decades to heal. Our only comfort in the process is the reminder that there was indeed a time before the oil rush, and maybe, if we're lucky, there will be a time for our civilizations long after it as well. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.